Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. My name is Rick Harrell. I'm one of the pastors here. Actually, I'm the pastor of small groups here at Seacoast Vineyard. And um, uh, I am uh, going to bring in the message this morning. Uh, Over the past few weeks, you've been paying attention, I'm sure, to the Christ and Culture series that Pastor Tim has brought to us. And you, like I, come each Sunday uh, looking for what God's going to say to us. And uh, and I think God really spoke to us about uh, the whole thing about... uh, being Christians, being Christ followers in a culture that seems to be kind of increasingly maybe um, uh, angry with the church, uh, uh, struggling with values that the church values and struggling with uh, what the church stands for. You know, we looked at uh, alcohol and we looked at weed and we looked at uh, the LBGT issue and we looked at the um, uh, women in ministry issue. We, we tackled some really hot topics that, uh, that, uh, we had a chance to address as a church. And uh, if you didn't get all of those messages, you can go to our website and actually uh, either download them or listen to them on the podcast there. But I wanted to give you my takeaway. Uh, that's kind of a uh, the pastor preaching privilege. We get to talk about things that uh, maybe weren't exactly assigned to us. But I want to give you my takeaway on what I heard during these last few weeks of Christ and Culture and the series that we just went through. Some would say that we're to uh, firmly plant one foot in Scripture and firmly plant one foot in the culture, and that way we can, we can uh, stay rooted in the Bible, but then we can also be uh, very conscious of what's going on in the culture. And so when we do that, uh, when we do that, the problem is, is the, the culture is always shifting and changing and moving. C- the culture is fluid. It's like, uh, it's like a stream flowing by us, and, and, uh, and, and things move by us so quickly. And if, we don't, if, we, if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves standing on the, on the shore of the river as the culture flows by, and we're shouting the gospel to people as they go by in the culture, and they only get a little bit of it here and there. And, and, and so they can't get the whole picture because we're not in there with them. And uh, I'm not sure that we are called as a church and as a people of God to be culture current as much as we're called to engage the culture with the radical, irresistible, unconditional love that God has showed us. And, and we're, we're to show that to the culture. So I say, what if we take the practices and the values? What if we take uh, what God has poured into our lives, the healing and the compassion that he's showing us and that he's already showed us, what if we take all that and we risk it all? We jump into the river and every chance we get, we share it with somebody near us. And we see God's compassion and life-changing power change them while we share it in the midst of our culture. That's radical to do that. And that's the kind of church that I like to be a part of. That's the kind of life that I like to see happen. Well, in the first century church and all the way through the last 2,000 years, and especially we're wanting to look at the first century church for a moment this morning, uh, 
Uh, that's exactly what they were wrestling with. They were in a culture that, um, that was not conducive to, uh, to Christian values. They were in a culture that they had to figure out how to relate this good news that they had experienced, this, this incredible, uh, rich experience they'd had with Christ, and they were trying to figure out how do we relate this to a culture that doesn't know a lot about the Jewish religion, or they don't know a lot about synagogues and the life of the Old Testament. How do we relate the gospel to that? Because outside of Judea and, and that area, the, the, the world was very different from what the Christian faith was birthed in. And so there was, a, there was a, uh, a need and a wrestling with how do we share the gospel to this culture that seems to be moving fast around us? How do we share the gospel uh, in the midst of that? And for 2,000 years, the church has wrestled with this. And the first century church, to illustrate the hope and the life they had found in Christ Jesus, they adopted two actions, two pictures, two, uh, two practices that shouted, literally shouted the gospel to the culture that they were in. It shouted, we found life in Jesus, we found hope in Jesus, and we'll never be the same. And so the church wrestled with that, and they gave us, the church gave us, and now we practice two primary pictures or two primary actions that show to our culture today who Jesus is and what life he's given us, the life that he's given us. So this week and next... We're going to look at these two practices, these two actions that the church takes to show the gospel to the culture and, uh, and speak to that culture about who Jesus is. And uh, so if you want to take your message outline and uh, follow along with me, uh, you've got a message outline with some fill in the blanks there. But if you don't like to fill in the blanks and you like to have all the answers at the front end, you can actually take your iPhone or your iPad or whatever device you've got and uh, go to version. And go to live events, and there we are. Click on the live event for today. And you can follow along right there. It's got all the passages already loaded in there for you, and it's even got the answers filled in on the blanks for you. So join us there if you'd like to. And today I want to talk with you about the practice, the action of baptism. Now, baptism is one of those uh, churchy words. You hear it a lot. You, uh, you maybe hear it. Uh, every Sunday, something about baptism, and we're going to be baptizing, or somebody got baptized, or we need to baptize on the 22nd of June, which we're actually doing. We have a baptism event coming up. And so this word baptism gets maybe tossed around enough that it becomes kind of a white noise word, kind of static. And you're listening, and then baptism happens, and it goes, you know, and it just clicks off. But baptism is so important to us, and if it's so important to us, and we we practice it, and we schedule it, and we invite people to it. And, and by the way, you're all invited to come down to the beach at 65th Avenue South. No, North. I'm going the wrong way. 65th Avenue. Don't go to South if you're there. Well, you may have fun, but it won't be as much fun. But go to 65th Avenue. We're going to be baptizing people there. And so we want the church to come and celebrate. It's going to be a great time. So, uh, so we, we spend a lot of time, 530 on the 22nd of this month. So put that on your calendar, and you'll hear more about that in a few minutes. So, uh, so we spend a lot of time on, the, on talking about baptism. We schedule it. We, we even have a place on the, on the fill-in-the-card that you can actually check and say, I want to be baptized. So we actually put a lot of time and a lot of energy into it. If we put that much energy into it, why is it so important? Why is baptism so important to the church? 
And more importantly, and this is the question for each of us, why is baptism important to you and to me? Why is baptism so important? So if you'll look in your, in, in your Bibles in the 8th chapter of Acts, and we're going to look at some verses there. It's a fairly long passage. I may get different people to read it. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that to you. Uh, but I want you to read along with me and read with fresh ears about, uh, about Philip and what happened with him. Acts chapter 8, beginning with, with verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasure, treasury of Candace. Actually, that word Candace is probably better. Kandaki, the word Kandaki in, in Ethiopian or in Nubian meant queen mother. And so she was the queen mother of the whole nation. And the way that nation was structured, the king was kind of a god. And so he didn't do anything. So she was really in charge. And so here was the accountant to the person in charge of a whole culture. And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. He was a God-fearer. He was seeking God. And on the way home was sitting in the chariot. He was sitting in his carriage reading from the book of Isaiah the prophet. So he was a wealthy man or he wouldn't be able to afford uh, uh, manuscripts like that. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Translate, eavesdrop. Find out what God's doing. Listen to what God's saying in the midst of this experience I've called you into. So Philip ran up to the chariot. I love his spontaneous obedience. He ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? Are, are, you, are you getting what you're reading? And he said, how can I? unless somebody explains it to me. So he invited Philip up into the chariot with him to sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch looked at Philip and said, please tell me, is, is this passage about the prophet? Is the prophet talking about himself? Or is he talking about somebody else? And Philip began with the very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Well, now they're in the desert and they're traveling down the road. And as they traveled, they came to some water in the desert, which is a cool place to find water, I guess. And they came to the water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, which is a whole other story that I'd like to explore sometime, but that's a whole message. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Okay, we're going to stop the story right there. There's a little bit more to the story. But when I read this story, and when I, when I consider the act of baptism, baptism is all about movement. It's all about this movement. We move from being unforgiven 
to being forgiven. We move from being in darkness to being in the light. We move from being not a part of God, not a people of God, to being belonging to the people of God. And so baptism is all about this movement uh, that goes on. And even when you think about it, think about the act of baptism. Many of you have been baptized in this, in this room, uh, and many of you need to be baptized in this room, but many of you have been baptized. If you've seen a baptism, there's this movement where the person goes down into the water, and then he goes under the water and comes out, and all the water's flowing all over him. And there's this, this beautiful picture, this beautiful movement that we see in the baptismal act whether it be in a baptismal pool in a church or it's in the surf like we're going to do on the 22nd. Uh, there's this, this beautiful movement that's going on. And then the person moves out of the water and moves into the culture to live the Christian life in a way that draws others to the Lord. And so there's this movement that's going on. And the, but there's this movement for Philip as well. The passage here is no different. Philip is moving in God's purposes. And Philip has just experienced some incredible things in the Lord. He was, uh, he was in Samaria where revival broke out, and God used him to draw people to himself in Samaria. In fact, there was this, this rich spiritual revival broke out and, uh, that Philip had been a part of, and, and he, was, he was in this, uh, in this revival, and he was seeing people healed and saved and delivered, and, you know, incredible experience, uh, this rich spiritual environment that you would not want to leave. And God says, go to the desert. And he had to leave that place where he thought, this is where I need to stay. This is where I need to spend the rest of my time. And God takes him down to the desert road toward Gaza because he had a plan, because he had something. So there's movement in this passage that God's using uh, Philip and drawing him into this, this action. He moved him out of his comfort zone in Samaria where he thought, this is where God wants to use me. And he moved him down into the desert as a part of God's plan for his life. And then of all things, after he shares the gospel with the, the, uh, the Ethiopian um, accountant, you know, uh, he, the treasurer, he, he saves him and then he shows him where some water is in the desert road. And Philip being obedient and this eunuch, this Ethiopian being obedient, there's water. Why can't I be baptized? There, then they move down into that water. There's this beautiful movement, this dance, this movement that God's bringing about. And then God moves Philip elsewhere. But the queen's accountant continues on the road and heads back to his culture to live the Christian life and show Christ to his people. Now, for those of you who have been baptized, you know all about this movement. You've moved toward Christ. You've moved to become a Christ follower. And if you've been baptized, you've moved into that water and you've experienced that, that palpable feeling of, of the water enveloping you, but also that intangible experience of God's presence being there with you. And your choice and your celebration for baptism is one in a long line of 2,000 years of believers saying yes to Christ and celebrating that by being baptized. Now, this Ethiopian court official, history indicates, went back to his culture and he shared the gospel in the queen's court. And the gospel took root in the queen's court and then spread to the officials and to the leaders. And then it moved into the people and all through that culture. In so much a way, the gospel spread among the people in Ethiopia. It's said that this highly influential 
highly developed culture moved toward Christ willingly. Unlike many cultures, without bloodshed and without martyrs. Changed the culture. And that's what Philip got to be a part of, and that's what the Ethiopian got to be a part of it as well. And so, uh, as a way of introduction, a little bit of history about baptism. It's important in baptism to understand the history about baptism. We need to respect the history about baptism. So, if you're filling in your blanks, that's your first fill-in. Respect the history about baptism. Late one winter evening in January 1525, a man named um, Conrad Grable, his friends George Blaurock and Felix Mons and about 15 other men who were friends of theirs met for a late-night Bible study, a kind of clandestine Bible study. These guys were all in their 20s, and they had spent... Young guy. See how young a guy he is. In their 20s, and they had been instrumental in bringing the gospel, the message of Christ, to the people in Zurich. And revival had broken out. They were key leaders in that young age of bringing a revival to that city. And they met secretly that night to study the Bible and take a step that had been not taken for hundreds of years. They, like many others in the city, had decided that the the salvation experience, saying yes to Christ and following him as a Christ follower, wasn't something that they were born into as a baby, but it was a choice that they made by repenting of sins, trusting what Christ did on the cross, and choosing to follow him as Lord and Savior. And so they had come to this decision. Many of them had, people had come to that decision in Zurich, and these men had done the same thing. And, uh, and they were there for the Bible study, and they were there to worship God. And, and uh, that night they studied Scripture, and they worshiped, and they fellowshiped. And there was a sweetness to the presence of God in that room, and a great joy and an assurance that they were in his presence. George Blaurock looked at his friend um, uh, Grable and said, Would you baptize me? I believe that my testimony that Jesus is my Lord and Savior should be said by baptism. And Grable baptized Blaurock, and before the night was over, every one of those men were baptized as a testimony that they had become Christ followers and that they were in it for life. And because this was such a radical action, within 10 years, all but one had been martyred for their choice to be baptized and to preach the gospel. All of them had been martyred. The only one left who had not been martyred was the guy that you saw on the screen, Conrad Conrad Grable. And here's what he said. Here's what he said about baptism. He said, baptism is the mark of change in the inner man. It is the mark of a new birth, a washing away of sin, a promise to walk according to Christ. And the men died for their faith because that's what they believed. And baptism really is indeed a mark of our faith. It's a mark of our new birth. Picture with me what happens in a baptism action. When you're baptized, you go under the water. And some would say when you're immersed in that water, it's kind of like being in a watery grave. Our old nature is, is dead to sin. Well, I'm not real big on death metaphors. I think that a better picture is that it's a picture of, of the new birth. 
It's a picture of the new birth. It is a picture of our old sins being washed away, but it's a picture of the new birth. And, and the, a person is plunged into the water and comes up out of the water new, born again, showing that they've been born again by the Spirit of God. Like a fresh newborn, they come up out of the waters to live for Christ, to really live and not just exist. And so baptism really is a mark of the new birth. And although the waters don't wash our sins away, it's a graphic picture of God and his cleansing forgiveness as he forgives us and cleanses us and makes us new. It points to this. The baptism points to this. And the act of baptism declares to the world, I am forgiven. And it says to the culture around I'm choosing to follow as a forgiven one of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says it like this. Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 4, says this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. God's grace, God's forgiveness are there and declare to the world through your baptism all the way to the heavenlies that you're alive in him. Somehow or another, when we say yes to Christ in baptism, there's, there's an act that declares to the angels in heaven and the people on earth, I'm a Christ follower and I have his life inside of me. So it is, it is a, a, a picture of those sins being washed away and the fact that you're forgiven. And it is a promise. Baptism is a promise that you're making. You're saying to Christ, I'm in it for life. You're saying to Christ, I'm your follower. I'm your disciple. I'm going to live for you for the rest of my life because I can't go back to the old. I can't go back to the old ways. It's a covenant act that declares that, that you have new life in Christ. He's your Lord and he's your Savior. In fact, baptism really was an act of defiance. It was a picture of defiance. And for Grable and these other men, it was an act of disobedience to the civil authorities. But baptism is an act of defiance because we're saying to the world and we're saying to the nature of sin in us, no more. We're saying that, that this, this, uh, this sense of, of having to live for our own passions and having to, uh, to, to pave our own way and to, uh, to just exist is no more. We're defying what the world says about us, and we're choosing Christ. We're choosing his life in us. And the selfishness and the sin sickness and the greed and the inhumanities that come out of our lives apart from God are no more. And we're defying what the enemy wants and what the world says about us. And we're saying, yes, we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to live for him. We're going to live just like him. And we're going to live out the life that he's called us to. You're saying that you align your life with the king of the world, Jesus Christ, and the king of the heavenlies, Jesus Christ, the compassionate one who frees us and gives us life. And so it's a declaration of defiance as well. No more of the world and yes to Jesus Christ. So it's important to respect the history about baptism. But it's not only important to respect the history, it's also important to enjoy the mystery about baptism. 
Enjoy the mystery about baptism because there's a mystery that happens in the baptismal waters. Now, uh, our church is a smart church. Uh, we have uh, a lot of academics in here, uh, a lot of people with a lot of different degrees. Uh, we're, we're a smart church. And, um, and we look at things with, uh, uh, circumspectly with, with a rational, logical, academic way. Even sometimes with our faith, we look at things academically. We look at things very rationally. And so we're a smart church. And I like to say that because I like to see who's nodding their head. Yeah, that's us. Yeah, we're the smart church. And we are. We actually are a very, a very smart church here. But you can't deny the supernatural thing that happens when we pray or get prayed for, when we worship God or when we're serving God, and the palpable, tangible sense of God's presence wraps around us. And there's a sense that he is meeting us there in that act of worship or in that act of praying for someone or in that act of service. God shows up, and he makes his presence known. And so we need to enjoy the mystery of God with us. We need to enjoy that. There's a mystery that's undeniable uh, when God's presence is there. And we need, to, we need to respect that and enjoy that. Now, some of you guys know that I went to seminary. I packed a three-year degree into four and a half years. It wasn't hard. Actually, it was very hard. One of, the, one, of the, uh, one of the last classes that you take because you fear it so much in seminary is systematic theology. And in systematic theology, that's the classroom that you go in and you codify everything you know about God and the Bible and salvation and his return. And, and so you, you work the org chart and you figure out where everything fits neatly together. And, and so it's, it's a way to systematize what you believe about God. The problem with that class is that everybody in the classroom, pretty much everybody in the classroom, believed in a supernatural God that you really can't codify all the way. Yeah, everybody, in, in fact, if you asked anybody in that classroom, why are you in this classroom? They would say, God called me to be a minister, or God called me to serve him, and I'm preparing. Now, you don't get much supernatural than God speaking to you. Yeah, God speaking to you. And so here's the, here are all these people in the classroom trying to codify theology, but they know they can't. And so we can only get so far in, in making sense out of, out of who God is and, and making this systematic way of, of seeing how God works because he just doesn't fit in a flow chart. He just doesn't fit in an org chart. He's so much greater than anything we can codify and understand. So I came out of that class, I came out of that class with a firmer grip on my inability to understand God than ever before. That's what I got out of the class. And, and I've got a different philosophy now. I am systematically committed. I'm committed systematically to look for places where God is mystically working and mysteriously working. So that's my systematic theology. I want to see how God's working and get in on it. So uh, God is a mystery, and how he works is a mystery, and he invites us into that very mystery. Um, and yeah, some of you, some of you uh, maybe wrestle with this whole supernatural mystery thing about God. You know, you, we may say verbally God heals or God provides, but when you're in the midst of sickness, and you're in the midst of, of a need, a financial or physical need, how does your faith shine? 
What do you believe then? How do you trust in the mysterious timing of God when you're praying for someone who needs to be healed? How do you trust in this mysterious way that God brings resources into our lives exactly when we need them? Somehow God combines this beautiful, beautiful, tangible, trustworthy promise that he gives us, all these promises. He combines those with this beautiful messy, mind-boggling mystery that he is to us. And that's the joy, and that's the beauty, and that's the excitement of the Christian life to be in on that. It's the same way in the act of baptism. The tangible, palpable feeling of water around you as you're plunged under the water and you're immersed in the water, or in the waves in our case, you're immersed in that wave and, and that, that feeling of water surrounding you is combined and united with that intangible presence that God is with you and God is meeting you in that water. The God who created the planets and the God who created the platypus chooses to meet you in those waters. And here's the beauty of it. The beauty of it in baptism is that God chose to meet you. He reached out to you first. He chose to to draw you to himself. He chose to demonstrate his love to you. He chose to offer you forgiveness. And and you accepted. But he reached out first. And that's the beauty of baptism. He meets you in those waters because you've said yes to him. You've received him into your heart. And you said yes to him as Lord and as Savior. And he chooses to meet you in those waters. Somehow or another, there's a mystical nature to baptism. And we need to enjoy the mystery of baptism as well. The waters don't save you. But where God gets his way, where his kingdom is present, and where we do what he says to do, God's presence is there, and he pours his life into us. And he meets you in those waters. So we need to enjoy the mystery. We also need to respect the history. But I've got one more word for you. Uh, One final fill-in for you. Don't miss out on your own story. Don't miss out on your story. Somehow we decided in the Christian experience in America that that some things of the kingdom are are expendable. Some things in the kingdom are optional. Some things in God's economy of how we walk with Jesus can be taken or left. They're optional. And God wants to pour life into us in our obedience. And somehow or another, all through the New Testament, they got this. There was, a, there was an immediacy to it. There was a sense of, oh, I'm, I'm a Christ follower. I need to be baptized. There's water. There's water on the side of the road. There's water. There's the pool out back. You know, I need to be baptized. And all through the New Testament, we see couples and families and neighbors and business partners and people who have come to Christ and said yes to Jesus and they're Christ followers and they get baptized as a picture, as a graphic and powerful picture to the culture that they lived in that they were Christ followers and they had his life within them. They had chosen to choose Christ. People one by one have said, yes, I'm defying the world. And I'm defying the world standards, and I'm choosing his life in me. And I want to say that to the world. I like how Hebrews says it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says it like this. And this is a great passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, 
if you can imagine that, like, like running down the, the, uh, the um, marathon line and this crowd of people are cheering you on. You're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses cheering you on. Since we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So there's this cloud of witnesses that have said yes before you that are cheering on and saying, yes, follow with all your heart. And again, somehow in the mystery of the kingdom, somehow in this mystical mystery of his economy, when you choose the life of Christ in you, you are surrounded by others who've come before you. You're surrounded by clouds, a cloud of people who've chosen to live this radical life of love before their culture as well. And they're somehow cheering you on. The church throughout the ages has chosen baptism as the powerful graphic action that says to the world around them, Jesus is my Lord and it's his life that I live now. One final word uh, that Jesus said to his disciples, and we've already seen it up on the screen. Uh, He had already uh, died on the cross, already risen, risen from the dead, and he was with his best friends, the disciples, and about 500 of their friends on the hillside. And in, in uh, Matthew 28, he says to his disciples, he says to all who are listening, he says, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you till the end of the age. He commissions his church, his people, to baptize whomever, whenever, and wherever they can. But the other side of that, of that command, that other side of that commission, is to you to be baptized. And I would encourage you that, and I know there are a lot of traditions about baptism. There are a lot of churches that practice a lot of different ways. And some of you have been baptized as, as infants. Some of you have never been baptized. Some of you were baptized as, as children, maybe at confirmation or because a lot of your friends went forward or said yes to baptism. But you've come to Christ. Or it could be that this morning you've been grappling with this whole thing about who Jesus is and you're saying yes to him today. And you know that the next step is baptism. You know that that's the next thing because you need to say to the heavenlies, you need to say to the crowd of witnesses, and you need to say to your friends and your family and the culture around you, I'm following Christ, and I'm in it for a lifetime. And his life in me is more important than a little bit of uncomfortable feeling or fear of water or whatever. I'm going to follow Christ. And that could be what God's saying to you today. If this is your time to say yes to Christ, if this morning is your time to say, I've been hearing about this, this Savior of the Bible, this, this Lord of the Bible, but I've never made him the Savior of my life. I've never made him the Lord of my life. It's your time to say that today. And I encourage you. I encourage you to do that today. And it could be that as you've been listening to this, it's, it's reminded you, I need to be baptized. I've never been baptized since I've been a, a believer. I've never said personally, oh yes, I'm going to be baptized and done that as a way to declare to your family and your friends and the culture around you that Jesus is Lord. 
If that's you, I encourage you to say yes to that as well. And the way I want to do this, I want you to, I, I want you to pray with me. And I'm actually going to pray a prayer. And if, if this is the prayer of your heart, I'm going to ask you to be bold enough to stand up. We're all going to have our heads bowed and eyes closed. But I'm going to ask you to be bold enough to stand up as you pray it. We're all going to be praying it. And I want you to just pray this under your breath after me. But if this is your prayer, if this is your time, I want you to just stand up and pray it along with us and say yes to Christ today. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to say part of the prayer and I want you to just pray it under your breath if it's your prayer. And if it's your prayer, I, I want you to, I mean, if, this is, if this is your time to say yes to Christ and this is your time to say yes to the act of baptism, this powerful picture of salvation, I want you to stand where you are. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me And you pray that after me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died on the cross. Thank you that you've drawn me to yourself. Thank you for this beautiful life that you've called me to. What I was, I turned from. I want your life in me today. So save me, fill me, be my Lord, and be my Savior. I choose to follow you. And Lord, I know that the picture of baptism doesn't save me, but it's an important part of my story. And I don't want to miss out on my story with you. I don't want to miss one bit of my story with you. And I choose to be baptized and follow you with all my heart. I choose to run after you with all my heart. And if you're praying that prayer and you're ready to be baptized or you're praying that prayer and you're saying yes to Jesus, I want you to stand right where you are. Just stand right up. Be bold enough to stand right up and say yes. Amen. Amen. Just be bold enough to say yes. Because you know what he's saying to you. Like Philip ran to the chariot to hear what God was saying and be in on it. Run to him and let him pour your life, his life into you. We pray all this thanking you in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.